Hey, we are returning uh, to our series through the New Testament book of Romans this morning. And uh, we are going to make a major transition here because the book makes a major transition. Uh, the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, which we have worked through, was primarily theological. And now the balance of the book, chapters 12 through 16, are going to be uh, primarily an application of that theology that we have learned. And if you have been stretched over the last 11 months uh, through the theological portion of this, if uh, some of the things that you have believed have been stretched, if there's been some things that have confused you or maybe you have been challenged, I'm here to tell you that you are going to get stretched significantly farther over the next uh, probably six months, most probably to the point of pain. Uh, and in some cases, I believe it might actually be uh, significant pain, but it is going to be good pain if we allow the Spirit of God to conform us who are the people of God to the Word of God for the glory of God. Uh, so let's get started. I'd like to start off our time this morning. Uh, I had been doing some uh, research about two weeks ago in preparation for the message, and I stumbled across a series of stories by a number of different news outlets that are located in Denver, Colorado, about an event that happened uh, about nine years ago. On September 12th of 2013, a, a massive storm system uh, moved into the Denver uh, Metroplex area. It was a, a storm system that dumped about 10 inches of rain over a period of about 24 Hours. And, and it turned normally sedate creeks and, and placid rivers into these raging, rushing, deadly torrents. And in the height of the storm, when the rain is just coming down like crazy, there's a fellow by the name of Ray Ortiz, and he drove his 2003 Silver Pontiac down a, a road called Dillon Road, uh, just north of Denver, towards a, a bridge that, that crosses a, reek, a creek called Rock Creek. And he was unaware at that moment that, that the water had inundated or inundated the road. And so he ends up driving uh, into, across the bridge, but ends up driving into this torrent of water. And uh, the car is overcome by the floodwaters. It is washed downstream. It is turned upside down. And it traps Ray inside. Now, fortunately, Ray is able to, to make him make his way to the, the back of the car, to the back seat of the car, because it was kind of tilted with the, the front down and the back up, and there was an air pocket that had formed. And so he's trapped in the passenger compartment. He's in this air pocket. That's how he's breathing. And he's going to remain there cold and wet, waiting to die, basically. And uh, his cell phone, believe it or not, is actually working. And so he makes a phone call. And the first person that he calls is his wife. And he wants to tell her that, that he loves her and that he may never, ever see her again. And then what he does is he dials 911. And immediately the North Metro Fire Rescue District search and rescue team, they, they swing into action. And the, the trucks rush out of the buildings. And, and the guys that are going to go or the ladies or whoever it was are going to go into the water. They're donning all of uh, their, their wet water suits in preparation for this uh, fast water rescue. And upon their arrival, and for the next two hours, these first responders, they valiantly, they make their way to the overturned vehicle. They, 
uh, put lines and ropes to stabilize the vehicle. They managed to, through using, uh, I guess, winches and things like that, flip the car right side up, and they're able to miraculously save Ray's life. And it is an amazing rescue, and it gives Ray a, a new lease on life. And how does he thank his rescuers? Well, initially, Ray is extremely grateful. He, he's uh, admitted to a, a hospital, and as he's recovering, they have a press conference at the hospital. He's able to come down from his hospital room to the press conference. He thanks everyone profusely. He tells everyone, I love everybody. He goes and he hugs his rescuer, whose name was John Cook. It's the happy ending that, that everybody is looking for. It's what everybody wants. It's what everybody expects. But that's not the end of the story. About six months after being rescued and getting a second chance at life, Ray Ortiz, who also, by the way, is Pastor Ray Ortiz, indicated that he was filing legal papers to sue the rescue district in the county for $500,000 because they took too long to rescue him. Isn't that amazing? Ray, he's saved from certain death by the heroic efforts of people he doesn't even know. People who are, are willing to, to risk their lives so that he could live. And how does he respond to the sacrifice on their behalf? After a fleeting moment of thankfulness, he ultimately threatens to sue them. Now, from the murmurs and groans in the audience, many of you are undoubtedly experiencing some pretty negative emotions against Pastor Ray at the moment. That's the case. You are not alone. Because news of this impending lawsuit made its way onto the Denver airwaves. And the Coloradans who lived in Denver were also experiencing some pretty negative emotions some posted their comments on media sites. I'm going to share a few of them that got past the censors. Too bad he didn't die. They should have let him drown. You see, when someone demonstrates that level of ingratitude, everything inside of us, it kind of streams out. That is so wrong. And, and, and how can anybody be that unappreciative towards someone who, who risked their lives to save them? Yet many of us are guilty of doing the exact same thing, but at a level of ingratitude that far eclipses that of Pastor Ray. How can that be, you ask? Well, if we consider ourselves Christian, there was a point in our lives when we have been surrounded by the raging torrent of sin. It's sin of our own making, sin that we can never escape from on our own, sin that was threatening to steal our life and condemn us 
to an eternity in hell forever separated from the love of God. And into that torrent came a rescuer who saves us from certain death, gives us eternal life. But unlike Ray's rescuers, our rescuer, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, suffers and dies in the process. And that, brothers and sisters, has been the message of the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, we have learned that God has demonstrated his mercy to sinners. That would be you and me. He has done that through sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins through his death on the cross so that those who repent of their sins and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior might live with God in heaven forever. And for nearly a year, as we have worked our way through the book of Romans, we have talked in great detail about salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have learned during that time that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Our sins are too great. God's righteous wrath against those sins is even greater. We desperately needed someone to, to intervene in our lives, someone to save us from the mess that we have gotten ourselves into, someone who lived an, an infinitely perfect life, who could satisfy God's holy requirements on our behalf, someone who died an infinitely sufficient life, who could satisfy God's completely justified wrath against our sin, someone who would conquer sin and death for once and for all through his absolute victorious resurrection from the dead, also that we can be rescued and placed in a right relationship with God the Father. That someone is Jesus. So the question becomes then, how are we to respond to something as amazing Something as sacrificial, something as loving as which Jesus has ultimately done for us? The answer is, we do it through overwhelming gratitude to God that manifests itself in overwhelming obedience to God. That, brothers and sisters, that's the heart of the last five chapters of the book of Romans. Living in overwhelming gratitude to God that manifests itself in overwhelming obedience to God. And the two verses that we're going to look at this morning give us a general overview of what that gratitude and obedience looks like. And they set the stage for everything that we're going to learn in the balance of the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app on your phone, Romans chapter 12, only two verses we're going to spend the entire time on this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. For those of you who are at home, it'll also be up on the big screen. And if you are able to stand in honor of God's word, would you please do that? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, what we have just read is the Apostle Paul's summary of what it looks like to live a life that is truly dedicated to God. And in these two verses, the Apostle Paul tells us a number of things about living for God. He tells us this, why should we live for God? How should we live for God? What is required in order to live for God? And what do we gain when we live for God? Let me say them again. Why should we live for God? How should we live for God? What is required to live for God? And what we gain when we live for God. So let's move through these just one at a time, just taking our time working through this. So the first one is this. Why in the world should we live for God? As I said before, this is a summary of what it looks like to live truly for God. And it is the, the, the prelude of these five chapters of intense teaching in which the Holy Spirit, speaking through the pen of the Apostle Paul, calls us to make radical changes, wild changes in the way that you and I live. Now, many of us in this room, not all of us, but many of us in this room, call ourselves Christians, which means little Christs. But we live lives that are far different than that of Jesus. Jesus lived a life of absolute holiness. Yet we regularly dabble and perhaps immerse ourselves in sin without ever giving it a second thought. Jesus, he lived a life of, of service. Yet we prefer to be served by others rather than serving others. Jesus lived a, a life of obedience. Yet we arrogantly pick and choose which of God's commands we're going to follow and which of God's commands we're going to completely and absolutely ignore. Jesus lived a life of sacrifice. Yet we're only willing to do things on our own terms and in our own time. Let's face it. Living for Jesus, it's hard. And we don't like hard. We want the, the comfortable Christian life. We don't want the hard Christian life. We want to call our own shots. We want to make our own rules. We don't want anybody else telling us what to do. We want pleasure and comfort, not pain and suffering. We, we want Jesus 
to be our Savior, but we're not too interested in Jesus ultimately being our Lord. We want to do the things we want, and when we're called upon to do something we don't want, we either ignore the request altogether, or we spiritualize it, concluding, you know, that's just simply not in my gifting. I can't serve in that capacity. And as long as what Jesus wants is what we want, we're all good. But when his word comes along and, and calls us to do something we don't want to do, something that's going to put us at odds against society or our family or our spouse or our jobs or our friends, rather than obeying Jesus and dealing with whatever consequences flow from obeying him, we instead ignore God's word. Or we twist it into something that it doesn't say in order to make it more appealing to ourselves and to our society. And the sad reality is this, that for many Christians, not all, but many Christians, we want salvation without sacrifice, and we want grace without godliness. But that is not what Jesus offers. Jesus is completely straightforward with what he has to offer to you and me. In Matthew 16, he says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For who would ever save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And forfeits his soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Jesus comes out and he says, follow me and die. That's what he offers. Follow me and die to yourself. Follow me and die to the world so that you might find true life. So then the question becomes, what motivates us to do that? What motivates you and I to follow him and to die in the process? What will inspire us to, to cast aside our control, our desire to be accepted by society, our love of comfort, our spiritual apathy and lethargy, and embrace Jesus with the entirety of our being? What will motivate us to do that? Only one thing. Unwavering gratitude. That's the motivation. Look again at verse 1 of Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I want you to notice that this is, this, folks, this has been laid out in the halls of heaven. There is a logic to this that is beautiful and pure. Watch how this thing gets laid out. Notice what happens. First, the Apostle Paul says what? That he is making an appeal. And the word that is used here is much more than a request. It is a strong word that demands action. Paul is exhorting us. He's calling us. He's challenging us. Ultimately, he is commanding us to live for God. It is not an option for the Christian. 
Obedience is the duty of the Christian. Second, it is an exhortation based on everything that he just told us about in the last 11 chapters. That's the purpose of the word therefore. When you see therefore in scripture, always look back to see what, what's the therefore, you know, the cliche therefore, right? And, and if you look at this, he's going back to all 11 chapters. He's not going back to just chapter 11, not going back to chapter 10 or chapter 9 or maybe chapter, he's going to say, based on everything that I've just got done sharing with you over these last 11 chapters, do what I'm telling you. Based on the fact that God is absolutely holy and that his standard is perfection. Based on the fact that we are radically disobedient people whose sin makes us incapable of meeting God's holy standard. Based on the fact that our sin earns us the wages we receive for the good work of sin that we do is what? God's righteous punishment, which ultimately results what? In an eternity in hell. Based on the fact that God came in human flesh, in the God-man Jesus Christ. Based on the fact that Jesus' sinless life fully fulfilled God's holy standard, which we could not satisfy. Based on the fact that Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross fully satisfied God's righteous wrath against that sin. Based on the fact that Jesus' resurrection from the dead conquered sin and death once and for all, securing eternity in heaven for all of those who repent and believe. Based on those things, obey. All of those are summarized in what he calls the mercies of God. Now why should the Christians living in Rome, and why should you and I live for God? Why? Because he has been so incredibly merciful to us. That's the reason the Apostle Paul gives. I do not deserve God's forgiveness. I don't deserve his grace. I don't deserve his mercy. And neither do any of you. Yet he gives it to us anyway. And that gift should encourage create inside of us an incredible sense of overwhelming gratitude that results in radical obedience. If you and I are not completely overwhelmed by the grace that God has demonstrated through Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, we will never live for God. We will always live for ourselves. If we don't wake up in the morning and are radically blown away that, that, that God has saved us through Christ, we will never, ever obey. And if you and I go through this life and don't have this sense of gratitude, we will forever be lost forever hopeless. So how then should we live for God? Well, after addressing the first question of why we should do it, Paul now says, 
how we should do it. And the flow of his logic is so critical. What Paul is calling us to do is huge. And so he was very specific about how he tells us what's going on here. Notice that he gives us the why first. He doesn't tell us what we need to do. He tells us why we need to to do this. And there's no greater motivation to holy living than consistently focusing on what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Because of what God has done for us through the person of Jesus Christ, we are to present to offer ourselves, to give ourselves as a sacrifice. Now that would have painted a very vivid picture for the Apostle Paul's readers in the first century. Because their church would be different than our church. At their church, there would be an altar here. And that altar would be stained red. Because on that altar, day in and day out, animals are coming in, being brought in. They're being laid on the altar. Their throats are being slit. Blood is going everywhere for the forgiveness of our sins. That was the atonement that was being made. That's how it worked. Jesus only becomes the ultimate sacrifice so that that doesn't have to happen anymore. But in that day, when this was going on, this is what the people, that's church for them. So they understood sacrifices. And there were multiple different sacrifices in the first century. The sacrifice that the Apostle Paul is referring here is called the whole burnt offering. It's an offering that is made every day, once in the morning, once at night, 365 days a year. It's typically a lamb. It is a lamb without blemish. The most valuable one of the flock of whoever was bringing that offering that particular day. It's placed on the altar. Its throat is slit. It's bled out. It is then put on a, a, a pyre, a fire, and the entire thing is ultimately consumed. All of it. The place smells of blood. The place smells of burning flesh and hair. And the reason for this offering was not for the forgiveness of sin, but rather it was designed to show one's complete and continual devotion to God. That's why it was completely consumed. So when Paul calls us to be a living sacrifice, it means that that you and I are to be completely and continually at God's disposal. Pastor Tim Keller sums it up this way. It says it means actively to be willing to obey God in anything he says in any area of life. And passively, to be willing to thank God for anything he sends in any area of life. And he gives us three specific aspects 
of this sacrifice that we are to be. First, he tells us that it's a living sacrifice. It doesn't die. It's a sacrifice that continues day in and day out in our lives. We're we're not simply to to live a, a life fully devoted to God on a Sunday morning and then the balance of the week live a life fully devoted to the world. And sadly, that's how many of us live, and we wonder why our lives are so completely out of control. We come to this place, we sing songs, we do everything, and then we go and live life however we want to, and we're one. Why is my life a wreck? But it's more than a living sacrifice. It's also a holy sacrifice. Holy means to be set aside, to be set apart from that which is profane, that which is ungodly, that which is of the world. It means that that we're to be different. Christians are supposed to be different, not in some weird, obnoxious, putting-off way. I don't need to, to give you an illustration of Christians that are like that because you have one, an image in your mind right now I'm certain of. Wacky, crazy, insane Christians. But rather, we're to live in such a way that people, they simply can't figure us out. They know that something is different about us, something that is not of this world, yet they're still drawn to us. When others are unkind, we're kind. When others turn a blind eye to someone's needs, we engage. When others are greedy, we're generous. When, when, when a need arises and others flee that need, we stop and we serve, even if it's not in the midst of our giftedness, because there is a need. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are wronged, we offer grace instead of revenge. So we're to be a living sacrifice and a holy sacrifice. And we're also to be a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. In other words, we seek no one's approval but God and God alone. We can be accepted by the world. We can be rejected by the world. It simply does not matter. All that matters is that we're accepted by God. And when we do this, Paul tells us that it is our spiritual act of worship. Now, that term spiritual here is a little confusing. The actual Greek word is logikin, that has been translated spiritual. It's where we get the the English word logic from. And that's why there's a footnote in your ESV Bible here that, that, that will say it's rational service or logical service. Living like this, living as a sacrifice to God, fully devoted to him, is the only logical thing for a Christian to do. Living any other way is completely illogical. It's not logical to call ourselves a Christian and then live for the world. 
It's not logical to, to come to church on, on Sunday morning and, and to sing praises to God and, and to fellowship and eat pastries and, and to, to pray and to listen to a sermon and read scripture and all of those things and then go home and for the balance of the week, take the Lord's name in vain. Or to be unkind to our spouse or our kids or our co-workers or our neighbors. It's not logical to call ourselves Christian and be sleeping with our boyfriends or girlfriends. It's not logical to fill our minds with pornography or violence or hatred. It's not logical to, to abuse our bodies, which God has given us, with, with, with drugs, whether or not the government says it's okay or not. It's not logical to have excessive con consumption of, of food or alcohol. It's not logical for a Christian to, to be dishonest at work or to be uh, irresponsible with our money or to be lazy and not provide for ourselves and our family members. It's not logical for a Christian to ignore the plight of the poor. It's not logical to turn a blind eye to racism. It's not logical to call what is evil good and what is good evil. That is not logical. And it is not logical to bow at the altar of politics or political correctness. None of that is logical in light of the great mercy that God has shown you and I. So what is required to do this? What is required to live for God? Turn your attention to verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you and I are going to fully live for God, it is going to demand hard work. There are no shortcuts. Because nothing that is worthwhile ever comes easy. Paul tells us there's one thing we must not do. And then he tells us there's something that we must do. The thing that we should not do is to conform to the world. Now, when the Apostle Paul speaks in terms of the world... What he's typically talking about, he's typically contrasting the things of God to the things of the world. And as such, this world or this age is the sin-dominated, suffering-filled, death-producing realm in which we live that is under the dominion of Satan. That's what this world is. It's not the globe. It's all the powers and all the stuff that happens in our lives. And it's to this world that we are called to not conform. But here's the rub. It is so easy to conform. Conform, it, it's the path of least resistance. It's what comes naturally. 
Our sin nature drives us to conform to the endless offerings of our sinful, broken world. Conforming is the default setting. you got to press the settings button and go down and flip the switch to not conform. Because we come out of the womb wanting to conform. Now what makes this so incredibly interesting is our culture is all about non-conforming. This is insane. Our culture comes along and says, do your own thing. Chart your own path. Let me be me. Be unique. Don't care what others think. And when we do that, we're actually doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. Isn't that amazing? In the midst of our culture's pursuit of nonconformity, those who consider themselves to be nonconformists are in reality striving to be exactly like everyone else who's priding themselves in nonconformity. Let me tell you how this works. I have no dog in the fight when it comes to tattoos. So I'm not a tattoo advocate. I'm not a tattoo hater. I'm actually a tattoo lover because my nephew, Henry, who lives in North Carolina, is a, is a tattoo artist. And here is what is amazing. When I was growing up as a kid, nobody had tattoos. The only way you had tattoos is that you came out of World War II, you were in the Navy, and they put an anchor on your shoulder. Okay? Then somewhere along the line, somebody said, I'm not going to conform anymore, and I'm going to get a tattoo. And now everybody is not conforming, and they all have tattoos, which means what? They're conforming. That's the crazy thing that is going on here. But you want to know what the interesting thing is this. Do you want to know what everybody doesn't conform to? God's word. That's what people don't conform to. They don't conform to God's standard of righteous living. And brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are not to be like that. Jesus has told us this world is not our home. John 15. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We're not of this world, and as such, we're to be different. Listen to the amazing words that are recorded in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, the reason that we are not to conform to this world is because when we don't, or when we do conform to it, when we conform to what the world has to offer, it demonstrates that we really don't love God. So how do we not conform to the world? Paul tells us. We allow ourselves to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. The verb form, or the verb transform, which has uh, the Greek version of that is metamorpho. 
And it's where we get the English word metamorphosis. And the one thing that you think of in metamorphosis is what? Is when the ugly caterpillar only turns into what? The beautiful butterfly. That's metamorphosis. And as it relates to this passage, this is what author John Stott says. He says, it is a fundamental transformation of our character and our conduct away from the standards of the world and into the image of Christ himself. You see, being transformed by the renewal of our mind is an intentional commitment to base every decision that we make and every action that we take and every belief that we hold on the trustworthiness and fidelity of God's holy word and not on the lies and manipulation of this sinful world. And this brings us to the final aspect of living fully devoted to God. What we gain when we live for God. Now, if you're like me, when someone challenges me to do something I want to know the why. Why in the world do you want me to do this? No, number two, I, I, I want to I know uh, what's required in doing this. What, what are the expectations? But the third thing that I want to know, and maybe it's just because I'm a control freak, I don't know. But I want to know, what do I get in the end? What's in it for me? What, what do I gain by, by doing this? And what happens here is I believe that's the natural inclination of almost every human, if not every human. Self-interest. What's in it for me? Paul understands this. And, and so he addresses that very question at the end of verse 2. He says this, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the will of God that Paul is talking about here is not God's will for my life. He, he, he's not talking about, uh, you know, does, does God want me to get married or not? Or who does God want me to get married to? Or, or what job am I supposed to work? Or, or where am I supposed to live? Or, or what restaurant do, does, uh, do I want to take Pastor Mike out to after lunch today because Kathy's away? You know, that's not those questions. <laughs> and it's not McDonald's. The will of God that Paul is speaking of is God's moral will. It's a will that is good and acceptable and perfect. And when we purposely engage in this process. And folks, it's a process. This does not happen overnight. This is something that, that happens over time. As, as we fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus, as we become more and more grateful, we, we become more and more like him. So it's a process. But when we purposely engage in this process of no longer being conformed to the world and being transformed by the renewal of our mind, we will begin to see God's moral will more and more clear every day. We'll be able with better clarity and certainty to know how we're to respond in a God-like manner to whatever situation comes our way. We will be able to, to know how to think like in a God-like manner about certain issues. We will be able to deal in a God-like manner with certain people. And we will be 
able to confront in a godlike manner certain problems. And it's God's desire for each one of us to have our minds so aligned with his holy word that we can instinctively know how to engage in whatever comes our way. So, what do we do with all of this? What is the appropriate response to what we have just heard? Let me first speak to those in this room who consider themselves to be Christians. And then I'll speak to those in this room who have yet to become a Christian. Christian, the first thing that we need to do is to take an honest evaluation of our lives. Does Romans 12, 1 through 2, describe me? And does it describe you? Are we consistently offering ourselves as a living sacrifice? Are we not conforming to the world? Are we being transformed by the renewal of our mind? Are we able to regularly discern God's will for the many situations that we face each and every day? If so, praise God. Because you, you're right where you need to be. But what if we're not there? What if we call ourselves Christians, yet we're not even close to living like a living sacrifice? From my perspective, there are only one of two reasons why anyone who claims the name Christian would fall into this predicament. One, we have somehow forgotten the great mercies that God has poured out upon ourselves. We have forgotten how lost we were to sin. We have forgotten how God's Spirit drew us to himself and gave us that tiny little bit of faith that empowered us to believe. We've forgotten about Jesus' incarnation, which he humbled himself by leaving the glory of heaven to take on human flesh. We've forgotten about his holy life, which he graciously imparted to us. We've forgotten about his brutal death, which he took upon himself to cover God's wrath for our sins. And we have forgotten about his resurrection, which conquered sin in the grave. And because we have forgotten, we are not grateful. And because we aren't grateful, there is absolutely no motivation to live a Romans 12, 1 and 2 life. And if that's the case for you, I pray that God would remind you of all that he has done for you, that you might respond to, the remain, to that reminder with gratitude, which manifests itself in action. But there's another reason why a person who claims the name of Christ may not be living out Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it's not because they haven't remembered, but because they have nothing to forget. 
we're Christians in name only. We haven't had a true encounter with the risen Savior. We're one of those people in Matthew 7 who Jesus is talking about when he speaks what I believe are the most terrifying words in all of Scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I fear that that might be the case for some of us sitting in this room right now. Some of us have deceived ourselves into believing we are Christians when we really aren't. That is a scary, dangerous place to be. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. Listening to Christian music doesn't make you a Christian. Trying to live a moral life doesn't make you a Christian. Tithing doesn't make you a Christian. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that's what makes you a Christian. And living in gratitude to that and in obedience confirms that very fact. Now that brings us to those who have yet to repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What about you? Well, first of all, let me say this. I am so grateful that you are here. My preference would be that there would be hundreds of you here. I am grateful that you got out of bed this morning, that you came to do something as countercultural as coming to a worship service, that you have just listened for, the clock now says minus up there, at least 45 minutes, to a raving Italian who is sweating and spitting all over the place right now. I am thankful that you are here, and I pray that you will keep coming back. I pray that you will keep exploring the claims of Jesus. I can promise you a couple things. Number one, we will always love you. No matter what you have done, no matter where you come from, because we have done the same things, we have come from the same places, we will not look down in condemnation at you. But I promise you this, we will not tickle your ears. We will not tell you what you want to hear. We will not affirm what society tells us. We will tell you the truth. And I pray that you will keep asking God to, to reveal himself to you. Because there are a lot of prayers that, that we pray and, and God says no. But there, if there's one prayer that God will say yes to, it's the prayer of a heart that says, God, show yourself to me. He will always, always answer that prayer. Second, we're here for you. We have a pastoral staff and an elder board and a leadership team and Bible study leaders who deeply love Jesus and deeply love others, and they will deeply love you. That doesn't mean that we won't blow it. 
doesn't mean that we won't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that we won't offend. But what it does mean is if you let us know what we've done, we will apologize for it. We will own it. We will talk through it. Because we want to help you understand the gospel. And more than anything else, we want you to experience what we have. And that is the joy of knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have been accepted by the God of the universe because you have placed your faith and trust in his son. And that you're not his guest. You're not a, a, a servant in, in his servant's quarters. But that you are an adopted son or daughter of the king who loves you with a love that will never, ever, ever go away. And I pray with all of my heart that it would be here at this place for those of you who have yet come to faith in Jesus, that you will come to faith in him. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, uh, I don't know what to say about all of this other than, Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. Lord God, I sin against you in thought, word, and deed, and I love you, and I love your gospel, and I strive to be obedient, Heavenly Father, but Lord, I fail you so many times, and I thank you for the everlasting love of your Son. And Lord, I'm sure that there are many in this room right now that share those same feelings as we go down through these lists of things and, and talk about these sins, Lord God. They're, 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 they're things that we're doing. And I pray, dear God, that you would, would work through the power of your spirit that lives inside of us, Lord, to, to convict us of these things, to, to show us that which is not in alignment with you. That, Lord God, that we would be authentic and faithful and living for you, dear God. And Lord, I pray for those who've yet to come to faith in you and for those, Heavenly Father, who have deceived themselves into thinking that they're Christians when they're really not. I pray, Heavenly Father, that they might have a real, true, transformative salvation experience with your Son. I pray that your Spirit would envelop them, that they would sense a pervasive love that comes from you, and that they would know that their sins have been covered, the sins of their past, the sins of the present, and the sins of the future by the incredible sacrifice of your son. Make us more like him and less like the world. And Lord, now as we prepare to take this offering, we thank you, Heavenly Father, for those who provide for the needs of this church family. Thank you for those who uh, give online. Thank you for those who give through the mail and for those who will place gifts in these baskets that pass by. Lord, we are grateful for that. Thank you, Lord, for those who desire to give but who are unable. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would uh, make that a priority in their lives, uh, Lord, so that they may be able to, to know the joy of, of giving for the needs of others. And Lord, help us to be wise stewards of these resources. Let us never use them to, to uh, make some kind of worldly kingdom, but Lord, may it always advance yours. And through your Son's name we pray. Amen.